everybody. Welcome to another Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive of the happenings in the hospitality community. Uh, now, if you're new here, hi. Thanks so much for joining me today. You're either listening to me or watching me, or maybe you're doing both. Uh, you may know me from the listareyouonit.com, the online e-zine that tells you everything happening in the D.C. metro area. Every opening, every promotion, every event. If you're getting ready for Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's, etc., it is all on there. So check it out. Of course, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Threads, LinkedIn, obviously YouTube, where this show is now. And um, what else? I don't know. All the things. All the socials, that's where I am. You can find everything I'm doing there. Um, you tune in every Sunday to Foodie and the Beast on 1500. That's where my... Husband David and I have had a show now for 15 years. It's the only uh, DC food and wine variety show and has been for the last 15 years and it keeps going. It's amazing. Uh, let's see. I think that's everything I do. I probably do more, but that's the, that's the brunt of it. So we're here on industry night. And as you can see, I'm still at the gorgeous point down at Buzzards Point. Um, if you've been watching the last couple shows, you know I've had a residency here for the month of November. It's been amazing. Uh, Greg Caston is the owner. The staff is incredible. Um, everybody is terrific. The views are fantastic. The food is delicious. Um, you'll see in some of my Instagram posts the food and some of the pics that you can have here. And you have to check out the bathrooms because there are wellies on the ceiling. And it's like a total art installation. We never talked about that. We should at some point. Anyway, but this is my last show here for the month of November. I'm going, I know, aw, but I'm going to be back later in 2024. The next residency is at the Wren and Tyson's at the Capital One building. I can't wait to get started there as well. And then later in 2024, I'm coming back to some of other Greg's properties. So you'll see them again. This isn't the last time. But the cool thing I learned from Greg, I mean, I learned a lot from Greg because he has a wealth of information between all of his different buckets that he has. You know, he's a fish guy. He's a restaurateur. He's a community builder. He does all these different things. But through Greg and Dave Para, who just sort of snuck off there. Oh, that's not Dave. Anyway, but Dave as well. I learned about the Anacostia Riverkeeper. It's this incredible group that is doing what it can to keep the Anacostia River swimmable and fishable or make it swimmable and fishable again. And I was like, that sounds like a heavy task. But I want to start with Greg because Greg sort of had the foresight to open up the point here where the Anacostia and the Potomac come together. And as a fish guy and a real estate guy, I'm just sort of curious, like, why the river is so important to you. I think the river just, people love being near the water. It just makes them feel better. When it's a beautiful day, it makes you feel wonderful. When you're deep in thought and need to look at something to ponder, the quiet movement of the water is settling and can make you feel better about problems. And, and, and then it's bountiful and fun. You see recreational activity. You see commercial activity. And over the last 40 years, I've been in Washington I've just watched all the waterways grow up, and I knew when I saw, as you say, at the confluence of the two rivers, mm -hmm. that this was a point you wanted to be at, right. and, and hence the name, The Point. Right. And, 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 you know, the Anacostia is a really a hidden gem in D.C., 
that the city is really working hard to make better. I give <clears throat> Tommy Wells and DC Water an awful lot of credit for what they've done out here. And this river in the last five years has started coming out in its own. And I wanted to be a part of that and be a part of the avant-garde as all restaurants want to be. That was my dream. Well, so I have with me today Quinn Molnar. She is with the Anacostia Riverkeeper. And Quinn, I just, for people who don't know, can you give us a little bit of the history of the Anacostia River? I mean, how did it get so dirty? What happened? Of course. So, you know, upon European colonialization, right, there was a flourishing indigenous population here, the Nachitank tribe. Mm -hmm. And through a lot of people moving here as it became a huge shipping port and industrial hub, we started to see a lot of ramping up that wasn't really met with the correct infrastructure. Okay. So that's where a lot of this starts. Uh, DC has had a long issue of sewage and um, other contaminants in the river. So, you know, recently a lot of this has been in the news. We see that Pepco $57 million settlement we just had the new tunnels come online and the Anacostia River Tunnel Project. That's been huge for water quality as well. But Good or bad? That's been great, actually. Okay. So um, jumping ahead a little bit yes. in the history lesson, but it's so exciting. So uh, the first tunnel, the Anacostia River Tunnel, came online in 2018, and that really changed water quality for the better. And the second tunnel came online this fall. And we used to have about 86 sewer overflows a year. That drastically impedes so people from being these, able to swim. What are these tunnels? And I assume this development here had something to do with all that as well, right? Yes. Like and every time there's a development on the water, isn't there something happening? Washington sits on a big rock. Right. It's, it, and the ton water would back up, especially in, in Ward 5 and Ward 4. Mm -hmm. And those tunnels have helped ease the water runoff in a cleaner way directly into the river. To this river? Yes. Okay. So they're essentially very large gravity-fed underground tunnels. Okay. And so Blue Plains Water Treatment Facility is the top-rated treatment facility in the country. It's ranks very highly on, in the international space, mm -hmm. but it's the geography of D.C. and right. it's just a challenge. So we have places like Paris, France, who's going to be hosting the next Olympics, Coming here and seeing how we have handled the revitalization of the Anacostia River and trying to model that on their own. Okay, well, so I feel like you have jumped ahead. Yes. Let's back up. <laughs> so start with me. What is, let's start here. What is the Anacostia Riverkeeper? What is it? Yes. Anacostia Riverkeeper's mission is to protect and restore the Anacostia River for all who live, work, and play in the watershed. Okay. Our goal is to create meaningful and lasting connections to the river for everyone who visits here, but especially for the residents who have lived here. Mm -hmm. The way we do that, the way we take care of this eight and a half mile stretch, 176 square miles, is through programs like free educational boat tours, Friday night fishing at the dock right up here. Okay. We have water quality monitoring programs for the last six years that help us track the river health. And that's how we know that it's getting much better. Mm -hmm. We have trash trap systems that are in the tributaries to stop trash before it enters the main stem where it's much harder to tackle. Okay. Uh, and so, and also this year, very exciting. We began the process of hosting Splash, which is the first permitted swim event in the Anacostia in over 50 years. So wow. in 1971, because of the historic pollution in the river. But th let's talk about where that pollution yeah. came from. Not, I know it was, it took years in the making, but I feel like um, 
that with the introduction of plastics into our culture, um, and there was, I, I think also in the 50s and 60s and 40s, less concern about where garbage went. You know, like I remember in the 70s growing up, I'm totally dating myself, but there was a, a really inappropriate commercial in today's terms. But, you know, there was a Native American crying because people were throwing trash out the window, you know, to stop people from littering. Very effective commercial. It was a very effective commercial. But my point is, is that I think, you know, like when my husband, who's a, quite a bit older than me, uh, when he talks about growing up, like in the 50s and 60s, he talks about the fact that he's like, you know, we would be, but his parents took a cross-country trip to California and they would just throw the trash out the window. So there's a change, but I'm kind of curious if, if it's the buildup of that that created the pollution in the river. No. Okay. So so it's not my husband's mother's fault. Well, no. I'm sure that is some of it, but most of the toxic sediment that we're dealing with is from refrigerants being dumped into the river, coal ash being dumped into the river. Yeah. They used to test bombs outside of the Navy Yard straight into the water. Okay. These are really the things that have caused... Yeah, so we're looking mostly at PFAS and PCBs. Okay, you're going to have to explain um, what that is for people because they're not going to know. Commonly known as forever chemicals. Okay. Basically, if they're there, they're there. There's few ways to get rid of them, which is what the Anacostia River Sediment Project is going to be dealing with, which is what this PEPCO settlement is dealing with. Okay. And so the main options there are to dredge, i.e. remove them from the river entirely, or to cap them with a carbon filter. Anacostia Riverkeeper believes that dredging is the best option. We have a sediment issue in the river. We lose a centimeter of depth every year. Even if we don't do anything, we're just losing half an inch of river space every year. It dates back to slash and burn tobacco farming when we took out all the trees, which really are what hold the sediment there. Place, sure. And so that has exacerbated it. Uh, Anacostia Park, while lovely and larger than Central Park in New York, right. used to be entirely wetlands. We've lost over 90% of our wetlands well, in the this river. used to be wetlands, right? Correct. Yeah. Well, yes. Yes. Yeah. The James Creek, which is next to us, used to actually connect to the canal which connected to Georgetown, which connected to Pittsburgh, and mm -hmm. was a mode of travel back in the 1800s. But wow. not right. today. You yeah. used to be able to get to the Chesapeake Bay on the Anacostia River. Really? But now you can't. It's you can't get past College Park okay. today. Interesting. Yeah. It's a far of this, way away. Because of the silt? The sediment has filled it up, among other things. Okay. Development. And we have the Seafarers Yacht Club. So there's a whole row called Boathouse Row up right. across Manacostia Park. Seafarers Yacht Club was the first black uh, yacht club ever in this country. Amazing. And it still has active members, but they can only take their boats out at high tide. So you can take your boat out for an hour, 12 hours, 24 hours. Oh, because once it goes low. You can't get back in. And okay. so folks are truly restricted as far as it comes to recreation. There's been a swim ban in D.C. since 1971. So boating is really the way that people can interact with the river on the water, and that's severely restricted because of the sediment issues that we have here. Okay. Uh, a lot of the rivers that used to flow where Anacostia Park is have been turned into tunnels underground, and that extremely exacerbates the sedimentation issue because there's nothing to grab it. Sure. So it all flows straight into the river right across from the yacht clubs. Okay, so now with Anacostia Riverkeeper, Let's talk about your programs that are putting in place to make this change. So 
we are born of advocacy. Water keepers are watchdogs of their jurisdictions. And so we have... Because it's a national group? It's an international group. It's an international group. So there's 350 water keepers across 40 countries. It was started on the Hudson. um, And so it's really grown. And it's great. We can all kind of use each other to collaborate on issues and, and find out how everyone does their programming. And so we have this collective of people with different wealths of information. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so being an advocacy group, we have long made sure that the river is as equitable and accessible for people as possible. So we have been in countless community, government, federal meetings advocating for the river's health. That includes dredging most of the time. That includes the tunnel projects that I was mentioning before. Mm -hmm. And also talking about new programming. A lot of times the district government will ask us what kind of needs to happen. And that's an opportunity for us to. So I, I asked you this question offline and I think this is the right place for it. It is necessary for the health and wellness of this area for the river to be healthy, obviously. But given the different socioeconomic backgrounds in this community, how do you work with both politicians and the community to get people on board to understand the importance of the health of the water. Because if you don't have something in your fridge, the health of the water is not going to be as important. But the health of the water actually at the end of the day can be as important because that brings more you know, economics, et cetera, and so on. Absolutely, and nature has a strong correlation with mental health. And so getting people out into an area that is safe and accessible is super important to us. We really need to meet people where they are. We need to make sure that we are using methods of communication that work for the different groups we're trying to attract. And what does that mean for you? So an email or a a cold phone call might work best for a politician, whereas boots on the ground, meeting people in their neighborhoods probably works best in those kind of differing socioeconomic areas, especially east of the river, where we have to make sure that we are including everyone in these conversations because this is their river, this is their watershed. So we want to make sure that we maintain their ownership over it. Mm -hmm. We have free educational boat tours and we wanna make sure that as many folks in Ward 7 and 8 get on the boat with us. We have two miles of uninterrupted riverbank on the Anacostia, no development whatsoever. That's unheard of in any other major city I can think of. Mm -hmm. And when you show that to people, there's a real response that you get. And it kind of is that catalyst for people to go, wow, this is in my backyard, like this is right here. And maybe they'll be more engaged. Maybe they'll come to Friday Night Fishing. And I love Friday Night Fishing. Yeah, can you tell me about Friday Absolutely. Night Fishing? Absolutely. Do you go to Friday Night Fishing? I've been. Okay, I've what been. kind of fish are we catching on Friday Night Fishing? Well, there's a lot of catfish. There's some smallmouth bass. Are we throwing it back there's in the water? Fish. Some people keep it, but most people like to... We don't throw. We yeah, lay it down with our hands and let... Him or her swim away. Do you know this? Um, in April, when they reopened the CNO Canal and they were slowly letting the water back in, the, the, there was like this much water in there. The fish—I can't believe how big they were. It was insane. Do you know what came to my mind when Quinn was talking about how people can realize the good work that's happening? Is ten years ago there wasn't an eagle here, and now there's six pairs, eight pairs, I think. Because the young stay close to the parents, sure. where do they eat? Off a vibrant river system that's able to produce fish and, and fish that they can catch. And to me, like if you go on the 
uh, with a river keeper and go out on one of their tours or something, you're more than likely going to see an eagle flying around looking for dinner. 15 years ago, they weren't looking for dinner. They were looking for another place to live. Right, right. That is amazing. It's really just a little subtle thing that everyone appreciates, right? They have them on the news. Oh, look, the eagle's having another net. Those eagles would not be here without the core work of keeping your rivers your rivers vibrant. But don't you also think that speaks to, I mean, for both of you, it's keeping the rivers vibrant, bringing the eagles back. It's not just for aesthetics, right? I mean, keeping that waterway healthy, getting people to be able to swim in there, be able to boat in there, the respect that is given to it. Keyword. Just, right? The respect that is given to it brings it. It's like if you give kind, you get kind. It only gives back. It's better for all of us. It's better for our, our air, our environment, everything, if things are living and healthy. Correct? Yeah. I mean, am I off on <laughs> My parents taught me if you borrow something, you return it better than when you borrow it. Absolutely. If you have a Tupperware, you return it. It's, it's really our responsibility to bring this river back. And, and one of the, as again, as Quinn was talking about, one of the things in the 40s, one of the reasons people think it was called Buzzard Point was there was a rendering plant down here and they would literally throw carcasses of animals into this river Aww. as they were creating food sure. for human beings and whatnot. And we would never dream about doing that. And that's an easy step. What, what River Keeper's doing now is the really technical stuff of truly understanding what happened over the last 200 years right. to create this negative force. And they're turning it into a positive and making it a positive force. Right. So how do you work with like the chemicals and et cetera, these forever chemicals? What is it that you all are doing as a way of eradicating them? It's a very long process. I have no doubt. Uh, so. it's the term forever is next to chemicals. <laughs> and, so. and expensive. Oh, I have no oh, doubt. Absolutely. Right. And so the Anacostia River Sediment Project has been going on for well over a decade now. Okay. Uh, we are not set to have contractors actually start working in the river until 2025. Okay. There's a lot of planning, and as there should be, you know, we're dealing with 77 acres of cleanup site. That's a lot of space. And there's four or five key hotspots as to where everything has to get cleaned up, right. and in order to that, how that has to happen, and if we are dredging, where does that come out? So we make sure that the district government is always going for the most aggressive option. Now, while that isn't always how it turns out, we want to make sure that we're going for what is the longest lasting solution. So we'll always uh, advise for dredging because, as we were talking about earlier, there's a severe sediment issue in the river. So we might as well make it deeper. Okay, so can we, pun here, dig down deep on dredging? I don't think the layperson really understands what it is or what what it does and why it's necessary. Because if we think about nature, right? We're like, doesn't nature handle that? But it needs help. So why does it need help and what does dredging do? So dredging is the removal of the sediments at the bottom of the river. Because of the depth and the history of how long it's been since that pollution happened, we are talking about a considerable depth of the river. Okay. Um, how deep that is, I'm not sure, but it's probably well over two feet at least of additional space that we would be getting. Um, and that, so what do they do? Do they just like... They would come in with big barges okay. and remove it and put it on those barges. And depending on... 
depending on how toxic it is, it can okay. get used for other things. Okay. So it can get used for shoreline restoration, mm. um, or it might have to go to a special facility because, you know, at the core, there are places that are going to be more toxic than others. So am I right? It's because I'm sort of putting the pieces together. So if it's not dredged, sort of the runoff of water, the overflow, like the river flooding, things of that nature is because there's too much silt? Sort of. I mean, a lot of the silt comes because of the development and and the runoff from corporations and, and stuff for years mm -hmm. has been unmitigated. So it just like, accumulates. It's accumulated and they've developed to the point where there's no buffer. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing to stop that sediment. And it just heads down river and it eats up a little bit more, a little bit more, a little Along bit more. Way. And gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. And and because that development is there, the sediment is going to continually, It's it, you're always fighting it. So you not only have to take out what happened this year, but to make up ground, you got to take out a little more than this year and a little right. more and a little more. And it is an expensive process to put a boat on the river and have it dig up. You also want it to be navigable, swimmable. And all of these things that come along with creating a channel and restoring the depth and natural flow of the river where it was. I don't mean to jump on that. You're doing great. You're doing great. But I think hearing it from both of you is so important because you're coming from two different angles. So it's the water is now fishable. What did you guys have to do to make that? Was it always fishable? I mean, you could get the fish, but so you wouldn't fishable want to. means you can consume the fish, which right. is not true. There's a fish consumption advisory in DC, and we would advise no one to eat the fish out of the river. Gotcha. There are some guidelines if you were to, and there are people who do subsistence fish on this river, but on the whole, the fish are not safe to be eating. Okay, uh, we are on the precipice of swimmable, uh, okay. which is super exciting, and I'd love to talk about for a second. So. Yes. Uh, because of all of the strides that have happened from groups like us and other nonprofits and the heavy work that the district government and D.C. Water have done, we are now getting much more consistent, good water quality standards. So wow. Kingman Island, Buzzards Point in right. Washington Channel last year passed recreational standards 90 percent or more of the time when we sampled in 2022. Wow. That's phenomenal. Like, yes. Bar none, that's great. With the tunnel coming online this fall, wow. that second one we are looking at an even better standard of water quality. Okay. So now we can start to have conversations about what swimming in the river could look like, because it's been over 50 years since that was legal. And so this year we worked on, and we're unfortunately stopped by rain, but we worked on a splash event where we can allow citizens and people in the area to jump in the river for the first time and reconnect with the river in a way that has not been afforded to them in decades. Amazing. And so now we're shooting for June 2024 and it's going to happen. It's going to be amazing. And we're talking about how we get down here and swim and how we swim everywhere on this river because it's a beautiful natural resource. And we're so excited to be able to use it in this way mm -hmm. and how all of that's going to unfold. And it's just a testament to the work that's been done here. You know, I think the average Washingtonian doesn't even realize where the Anacostia goes. You drive out New York Avenue right. onto Route 50 and you go over that bridge that used to be all mud. And now it's not only running water, but people are kayaking. They're yep. taking pictures of wildlife. They're, you know, walking around in boots and, and, and picking up plastic, which you mentioned on the shoreline. It's, it's, 
it's so much a part of what we are in Washington every day, and people just don't don't see it and understand it. Swimming and being able to use a river in those traditional ways would really bring the awareness to another level. I agree, especially since, I mean, since people haven't been able to swim here in so long, there's so many other cities, like I think of Chicago, right, where being on the beach in Chicago is a part of your summer in Chicago. Everybody goes swimming in Chicago, but nobody ever thinks about swimming in D.C. And you're right that, both of you are right, that what a, what a miss that we don't have. Next to Tony and Joe's on the Potomac River, when they designed that park, mm-hmm. it's supposed to have steps that let you walk down right. and swim. And I don't know, Quinn, if the Potomac is swimmable yet. Not in I, district waters. I, not quite yet, but really close. And all of a sudden, you're going to be able to take your family and go down into Georgetown and go and for swim. a swim. Or it's unbelievable. Or go to Kingman Island and right. spend a day at the beach where you're actually going in real water that's not some chlorine-filled pool somewhere. Right, right. No, it's amazing. Like, but it's a total shift, I think, in how you live in the city. Because I don't totally. think of Washington, D.C. as a place where I... What goes? I mean, this it just... river has been dirty for so long. Right. People have never experienced it, and they're. Uh, I'm 60. Right. I've been here 45 years. It's. I've never thought of swimming here, but it's so beautiful now. You can. Right. It's really close. Okay. So, how do people get involved? You meet us where we are. Right. <laughs> so we have a lot of different programming, um, volunteer-based or participation-based. So mm-hmm. like I was talking about Friday Night Fishing, that's a free learn-to-fish program for anyone in the city. Okay. Uh, we usually get about 1,000 participants a year that come fish with us that's over amazing. about 12 nights. Uh, we offer free educational boat tours. We gave boat tours to almost 2,500 people this year. Okay. That's a lot of new experiences, and I'd like to think it's a lot of new river stewards, too. We hosted about 36 trash cleanups across the watershed in D.C. and into Maryland. Then we collected a little over 17,000 pounds of trash so far. And what do you do with that trash? So we have a data-based approach with our trash. We sort among 20 different categories, and we use that information to inform legislation. So this is also where that government component comes in. Mm-hmm. So we were involved in the five-cent plastic and paper bag fee in D.C., the straw ban in D.C., the foam bans in D.C. and Maryland as well. Mm-hmm. And as I was saying earlier, and we're now working on a plastic bottle bill and seeing how we can tackle plastic bottles, which are the number one plastic trash that we deal with in the river. Right. 60% of the litter that floats on the river surface is plastic bottles. Wow. It's a really kind of, it, it really has a lot of depth to it. And it's something that when folks come to our cleanups, I think that's one of the most impactful things. Mm-hmm. Well, you get a little messy, but you also really start to see the impact. And I think it, that's when a lot of people change their, their mindset on consumption. And okay. especially in the last 20 years, consumption has been encouraged in a lot of ways. And overconsumption has been very encouraged. You mean a plastic? Of plastic and also of other items. I mean, we find household goods and we find people who might have taken a shed apart and rather than take it to the dump, it was easier to put it in the park. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's folks on the river, and we did a study this year as well, on tire dumping in the river. That's a long historic issue on the Anacostia. And I'm sure... I don't understand how that happens. Where is the tire from and how is it coming in? They pull over the side of the road on a bridge and throw a tire off the side. I just... And if nobody sees them, they get away with it. Wow. Happens a lot more than people realize. No, I, I listen. 
there's a reason the tires are in there. I just like in my brain, I'm thinking, you just, I, I, you know, there's no, I don't understand the path. That's all. I'm not supposed to, but it's, anyway. I would be interested, Quinn, in what you think of the bag tax and whether or not that was an effective, that was a big thing for the restaurant business. It was a big thing. And whether or not that's effectively helped. Have you seen over the last yes. 10 years? It's, it's about question. 10 yeah. years old yeah, it's now, about 10 right? Years old. That's a very good question. It's been really great so far. So plastic bags used to be the number one floating trash on the river. Now on our list, they're probably about 12 to 15. Really, it's much lower. Uh, and incredible? we've seen a great decrease. But because we track our data so closely in 2020, we've seen an increase since then. And there's a logical reason to that, right? right? More takeout. And also during, you know, intense COVID periods, the government wasn't enforcing it. So things got lax. And general awareness. Exactly. Uh, you know, and, and I now, can honestly say I know of no restaurant that closed because we paid a nickel per bag that right. we were given away. But even now, if you go to your grocery store, like I live in Maryland, 90% of the people are coming in with their own bags. Exactly. I mean, it's a culture shift. It's a culture shift. And That's next could be is. water bottles. Exactly. And yeah. we just need to make sure that we provide everything for people to understand how it happens and that we don't disenfranchise folks who are don't already kind access. of in that situation. The city of Buffalo, I believe, just sued a, a large soda company that shall remain nameless over the amount of plastic in their rivers. They found out a certain percentage was of a particular brand. Mm. And they feel that that company has not done enough to prevent people from just simply discarding... You know, you drink a soda and right. throw the bottle away. Yes. Now maybe you will put your soda in a, a metal holder and drink it. And then, anyway. There has to be an answer to that problem. I have a friend who is in waste management. And, you know, we all think glass is better. But in Montgomery County, they do not uh, recycle glass. So it's just going in the guard. I, there's just no good answer. It's really upsetting. Single stream recycling has really created this issue in, right. in large part, uh, you know, because we essentially contaminate recycling constantly, it makes it much harder to recycle it. Sure. About 8% of plastics ever produced have been recycled. That's a staggeringly low number. Yes. I think people think it's much higher. Yeah. And, you know, we, we see a lot of movements now in the environmental sphere towards extended producer responsibility. Right. And what that is, is holding the producers accountable for the waste that they're causing. And that's what that lawsuit basically right. So um, back to plastic bags and plastic single-use plastic. The plastic bag fee has been extremely successful. Okay. Five cents worked, though, frankly, we could get more aggressive with it. It's harder to go back and change it, but... We're actually doing a study with George Washington University right now to see if it would be better to raise it to 10 cents or to see if we can ban plastic bags entirely. Sometimes banning is the better option here because we're, there's still paper bags that still exist. And like you were saying, there's a culture here of bringing your own bag. I remember my mom came to visit one time and she forgot her bags and she said, I just carried it out with my hands. I felt so guilty. <laughs> and in a way, you're like, good, good. I'm glad that's, that's what we're doing here. And so... As we move into beverage containers, I think that's really going to be much more of a challenge than plastic. Well, I think what's so hard with beverage containers, because we've all been trained at this point, thanks to Starbucks and the bottled water industry, like we always all have a drink with us. Like if you go to Europe or Asia or something like that, 
nobody is walking around with a drink in their hand. I mean, maybe in the dead of summer in Sicily or something, but you know, people are not walking around with a coffee. They're not walking around with a bottle of water. They go, they have their drink, they put it away. But something about Americans, we like need, we like to hold our drinks. Maybe it's marketing. Maybe, maybe it's something. But um, so I, that will be another cultural shift that we will have to go through. Yes. And it will require a lot of education and community input. And, you know, there's the logistics of who's going to collect all the bottles and who's enforcing this and how does that all work and right. who holds on to that money. What's exciting is for the first time seemingly ever, can manufacturers agree that we should have a bottle deposit? This is huge, really, to have a manufacturer agree. Plastic bottles haven't come that far yet. And, right. you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But you know, in other countries, some of these same companies are doing plastic bottles that have that are they're not as stiff. They're less plastic. And then they don't sell them in the states, but they sell them in other countries. And there's states across the U.S. that have bottle deposits already. California, okay. New York, Michigan, um, there's a handful more. So it's being done. It's just replicating it here is challenging for a handful of reasons. One of which being D.C. is very small and it's right next to two other states. Right. And so having those boundaries, how do you enforce those types of and we saw it with the foam ban as well, where when DC banned foam, we didn't stop finding it because it was just floating in from Maryland. Mm -hmm. So we have to have a two-pronged approach because our watershed is up across two state boundaries. Sure. Well, I think also a lot of uh, economic, um, sustainable behavior, recycling behavior, all that has to do with economics. Do you know what I mean? When the, when the country is doing better... People, you know, buy more gas, uh, less, uh, more electric cars, think more sustainably than they do when there's not as much money in their pocket. And people get to an age and they begin to think about the next generation. Mm. And, and that's also go. they're further along in their wealth stage of their life. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's it's awareness to me, awareness. And that's why I got with Quinn and the Riverkeeper group, because. Anything we can do to just let people know there's an effort to clean this up. And maybe it's as simple as you picking up one plastic can or volunteering for seven hours or participating in a study. Whatever it is, get off your butt and get involved and be involved. And so that's what we like to do. And that's why we got Quinn. And that's why I thought she should come on your show. Because what we do is happy hours where we serve draft beer, not in bottles or cans. <laughs> And people come down, but, but it's another example. Another great example I thought about is, if you remember in the 70s and the 80s, all the six-packs of oh, cans had to think, right? And yeah. being in the fish business, that actually caught tur sea turtles, catch their necks in these things, and, the and drown. And you can't find them now. And right. that was about awareness. They didn't put a tax on it. What they did is they went after the manufacturers and said, hey, can you get rid of these? And lo and behold, they agreed, and, and that now they're gone. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really about just doing your little piece every day and being cognizant. And I can't tell you how appreciative I am that you agreed to bring on Quinn, oh, because I, I think it's so important. It's such a beautiful asset for the city. Really Absolutely. Well, listen, I appreciate you introducing me to Quinn and this story, because it is important, and it should be out there. And the more that people know in the city about how to appreciate the city is it, it, it all reverberates, right? It all gives back. Okay.
tell everybody where they can find you guys online or on Instagram so that we can stay in touch and know what's happening with you. We are Anacostia Riverkeeper on Instagram no and S. Facebook. No, no S. It's a keeper, not a keepers. Uh, you can find us at anacostiariverkeeper.org. It is the giving season, so if you're feeling generous, I'd like to think that you think of us. Uh, and come out to a cleanup. We host our annual MLK Day cleanup at Pope Branch Park, right behind Anacostia Park. Last year, we had over 400 people join us, yeah. and we'd love to make that number even bigger. All right, well, will you send me that info? We'll make sure that's on the list, or you want it.com. That'd be great. Greg, I want to thank you so much, not only for the introduction, but the ability to be here for the last month. It's been incredible. Your staff is amazing. Everybody is so kind. The views are beautiful, and, um, you know, the food's delicious. So. Very nice. Thank so, you very much. We love having you. you. We love being part of D.C. All right. Well, great. Thank you. And I want to thank you all for joining me today. Of course, if you want to check out what's going on at The Point, you just need to come down here on Buzzard's Point. And everything you heard here today, you can find on the list, com. Of course, don't forget to follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, threads, all the things, LinkedIn, you know. But... Um, don't forget, if you have any questions, just DM me on any of those channels. I'm delighted to ask the people here with me or um, answer them myself. Food wrecks, all the things, I've got you. Thanks again for joining me and have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.